Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Colorectal Quiz. I'm Laura T. Saba, Colorectal Surgery Fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C., and today we will be discussing cloacal extrophy. We have some really good pictures that will be key to help you follow along with our case, so this would be an excellent time to download the Staker and app if you haven't done so already. You can download it at the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, and so you get full access to the images and many more pediatric surgery-related resources. Today, we are joined by Dr. Levitt and Dr. Frischer, and I will let Dr. Levitt introduce our special guest for today. We have a wonderful guest, Payam Sadai, all the way from Sacramento, California, UC Davis. Thank you both so much for having me on here, and it's so good to be in your presence as always. So as we get started, cloacoextrophy is a complex topic, and I can't think of a better way to discuss its management than through a case. So let's go ahead. Patient is a newborn girl. I got a phone call from a partner at a referring hospital. She's at 36 weeks and prenatally had imaging, both an ultrasound and MRI, that had described an onphalocele. They described a small bladder and sacral dysgenesis and didn't put it all together in quite the same way, but postnatally, it was very clear that, that this child had cloacal extrophy. Chromosomally, she's 46XX. So obviously, you bring, you've given us a good list of prenatal clues that should have made someone worried about a cloacal extrophy. I think this is a really important prenatal diagnosis, and I think there's a lot to talk about during the fetal consultation with a family who has a baby like this. This is obviously not just an seal. This is the most complicated thing that we ever have to manage in the colorectal world and requires a collaboration with urology and gynecology. And there's a lot of work to get this patient a good quality of life. As Dr. Levitt says here, we start to see the importance of that multidisciplinary approach. So let's keep going. So we immediately transferred the patient um, who was stable. Um, she was on room air and hemodynamically stable to our institution. And before she even got there, this was middle of the night, I had emailed our pediatric urologist and our pediatric orthopedic surgeon and let them know this patient was coming because I think one of the key steps here is that this is a multidisciplinary problem. We tend to manage it and spearhead it as colorectal surgeons, I think, at certain institutions, but, but this is a problem that needs multidisciplinary input. I would just a also add that they almost always need a neurosurgeon, too. Luckily, they're in a collaborative environment. Okay, listeners, at this point, we're going to start referencing the images. So on your state current app, if you look right below where this is playing, you're going to be able to follow along. So what, what you see in the photo is you can, you can see the pathology is all in the lower half of the abdomen and the pelvis. Top down, you can see the classic looking omphalocele with the sac. Around that, as you come down more inferiorly, um, left and right, there's two larger pieces of pinkish tissue that look like, you know, it's almost like a butterfly. They look like similar types of tissue. Those are the hemibladders. In the middle between those two is actually a sequel plate. And it wasn't until we were in the OR that we were better able to delineate what orifices were in that plate. Often, as we all know, there is a ilium that's coming out and prolapsed, kind of like an elephant trunk. And this child didn't have that. And then interoperatively, I was able to figure out why, because the anatomy became much more clear, but there was no classic prolapsing ilium. You can notice, you notice that the pubic symphysis is very widened. 
You can also see where the anus wants to be. There's a little bit of a dimple where the anus wants to be, but there was no opening there. There was no patent anus there. So you got the call from the outside hospital or from the NICU. How quickly do we have to act? Realistically, how much time we have before going to the operating room? Just like with any anorexia malformation, you need to do a little bit of a workup before you go to the operating room. So these patients, typically, it's not an emergency to go immediately. You have 24, maybe 48 hours to decide what your operative plan is going to be during that time. You need to do your lateral workup, most importantly, your echo, and make sure there aren't any congenital cardiac anomalies. That's what we did when the child arrived. We got an echo. There were no structural anomalies. We also did a spinal ultrasound and an abdominal ultrasound looking at the kidneys. The spine did suggest that there was a tethered cord. The kidneys, actually, there was no hydronephrosis. Uh, One kidney was slightly larger than the other, but the kidneys actually looked pretty good on the ultrasound. And you can often see stool coming out from the cecal plate from the ilium. So there isn't always a component of an obstruction. There aren't big dilated loops of bowel. So you have 24, 48 hours to get all your ducks in a row, decide what your next step is going to be. So for the NICU doctors that may not be as familiar with this as you are, what should we tell them to focus on? The key is is fluid losses and making sure that that, um, the child doesn't get dehydrated during this time. So I like to use some sort of plastic covering with classic bladder extrophy. Many urologists will use kind of a saran wrap to cover the hemibladders. Um, And then the usual for any situation like this, you know, I kept the kid NPO. I, I put a Repogol in, although there is no sign of obstruction. Typically, there isn't an indication for antibiotics if there isn't a, a maternal neonatal indication for antibiotics. So the baby's in the NICU undergoing the workup. What are some of the more surgical things to consider? The conversation I had with our orthopedic surgeon was how do we bring the pubic symphysis together if we want to attempt any sort of a closure? Because as you know, if you try to do a closure, the biggest and and most devastating complication is a dehiscence of that. And there's lots of different management strategies that orthopedic surgeons have in trying to bring the pelvis together if that's what your goal is going to be. I've had patients who had X-fixes. I've had patients who have had osteotomies, anterior-posterior, and that's what we elected to go with on this patient. Our orthopedic surgeon felt that the best time to try to bring the pelvis together is within the first two to three days because there's enough relaxant on board from the mom. So that affected what I was going to do and what our urologist was going to do. So guys, am I right to say, it, it sounds to me you're saying there's two de- decision points. One, the umphalocele, large or small, can you close the abdominal wall or not? And two, the staging of the procedure of the extra feet. Are you going to just bring the bladder plates together in a multiple stage procedure? Are you going to bring the close the bladder and bring the symphysis pubis closer together so you get a closure there? I think you're absolutely right, Jason. I think those are probably the two bigger decision size of the emphalocele um, and, and how that pubic symphysis is going to come together. So the, what we did first, as you can see in this picture, is that we put catheters into every orifice that we could find so that we can delineate the anatomy. Um, and sometimes that's a little bit difficult. So 
some of the interesting things we found here is that the left and the right ureter were able to put catheters in, but the left ureter was stenotic. That catheter didn't go up. So that was something that we were going to have to address and potentially revise. We found an opening, one opening for the left hemivagina. There was no external opening for a right hemivagina. And the right hemivagina was actually fistulized to the right hemibladder. So that was something else that we need to consider in our reconstruction. From a colorectal standpoint, it discovered that there wasn't just one cecal plate. The entirety of the hindgut from the cecum down to the end was duplicated, and there was another cecum behind that, and there was two appendices. So that also uh, was a bit of a surprise, and, and what did we do there? And I think one of the next big decision points is separating or not separating that cecal plate from the hemibladder. And yeah, so Mark, I want to I hear your thoughts on this, because I know we've chatted about this before. Remember, it's the cecal plate, which means there's more colon downstream from that cecum. Don't forget that. That is not the end of the bowel. And many unfortunate situations have occurred when a surgeon did an ileostomy and quit and left behind a cecal plate and a hindgut that's blind ending. It basically looks like a colonic atresia in the deep pelvis. That's good bowel, and that bowel needs to be rescued. Then the question becomes, do you extract the cecal plate from within the two hemibladders, which I think would be the traditional approach, or... And I have a new concept on this that I've done a few times where I've decided to leave the cecal plate alone, essentially auto-augmenting the bladder, take the distal ileum, connect it to the hindgut, make an anastomosis, and then either make an end colostomy or something crazy, put the, uh, the colonic atresia into the anus, and then divert with an ileostomy, and then close the ileostomy in six to eight weeks. Let's take a second here, because we just covered a lot of material in this last bit, and point out that you heard about the traditional management of cloacal extrophy with an introduction to some new techniques. So let's break it down a bit more. The traditional approach that I had, have, had always done was to extract the cecal plate from within the two hemibladders, tubularize the cecal plate, and bring out the end of the hindgut as an end colostomy. Right. And I'll explain and to you why my opinion about that has changed. I think an important point to realize in this patient population is the overriding principle of, of bowel preservation, right? The small intestine can be shortened in some of these patients. Some of these patients have nutritional concerns, not immediately, but long-term. In general, I think the theme should be preserve all bowel. But Mark, I'm really interested in this new technique or exploration that you're just saying that you're like doing three jobs in one. You're leaving some tissue because we know years down the line, all these patients will need bladder augmentations potentially for good urinary outcomes. And then we know for this patient population, we could do a whole podcast on should we pull these patients through or not. But if you're going to even consider pulling them through, you need that piece, that length of colon, whatever it might be, preserved in your, your reconstruction. So tell me what you're doing now. This is crazy. The traditional reason for separating of the cecal plate away from the hemibladders was 
to avoid absorption of urine into the cecal plate and the acidosis that might ensue. And that was the dogma. And of course, saving bowel. What I've noticed is that there are lots of patients with colonic mucosa absorbing urine, i.e. bladder augmentation situations, and the patients don't often develop acidosis. So that's to me is a non-issue. But what I have seen is that the cecal plate that has been tubularized is this boggy, fairly useless piece of bowel that the ileum enters and then stool sits in and then empties through the hindgut. And I had a, a case that really changed my mind on this that had this situation and kept getting bacteremic. And we didn't know why. And we finally concluded that it was the tubularized cecal plate. And I actually went in and I disconnected the tubularized cecal plate, which was a nice looking sphere. And I connected the ileum to the hindgut as an anastomosis and made a colostomy. And I left that sphere in. And then we later used that sphere for the augment. And then I said, why don't we just do that in the newborn period? Just leave the cecal plate between the hemibladders. It makes for a much less technical work. Take the distal ileum, connect it to the hindgut. It's a nice match. They're the same size. And then you have a primary anastomosis, ileum to hindgut. The cecum is out of the picture. It stays connected to the bladder. It's an auto augment of that bladder. And then you need to make an end stoma or I, what I did the last case was rather than mobilizing the hindgut out of the pelvis, I connected to the anus as an anoplasty. I diverted with an ileostomy and then I ended up closing the ileostomy and it worked really, really well. And I learned that trick from Ivo de Blau, who is in the Netherlands, who's done the hindgut pull through to the anus up front. Technical question. When you separate the when you leave the cecal plate behind, separate the ileum and then do your ileal hindgut anastomosis, there's a hole in your cecal plate. So you just oversew that hole. Yes, 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 plate. yes. It basically looks like hemibladder, cecum in the middle, hemibladder, three things that then can close into a sphere or be left open as a bladder extrophy would look and then close later at eight months as a delayed closure. Those are your choices. But the hindgut is rescued with a connection to the ileum. One of the reasons why we do not pull through cloacal extrophy kids early on is the worry of rash and a perineal stoma per se. Yeah. And so I hear, you know, from a technical standpoint, it's great. You don't have to mobilize everything and probably the easiest time you can do a pull through in this patient population. So technically it makes sense. But if in two or three or four months later, you're hooking your, closing your ileostomy, what does the perineum look like? What's the stool? What's your strategy from that standpoint? Yeah, so I would judge that based on how much hindgut there is. Many times there's enough hindgut to have good stool, not too thin. In a patient who doesn't have much hindgut, I would make an endstoma and give them plenty of time to develop thick stool. And then, of course, we know if they can't develop thickened stool, they never should have a pull through. No question, but sometimes you have a nice big piece of hindgut, like the entire right colon is there. And those are the circumstances where I might do it. Be careful though. I will tell you the time I did the pull through, 
the mesentery was so confusing and problematic that I felt that if I mobilized it up, I might lose the hindgut. And that's why I stuck it on the anus and was very happy I did. And Evo had the same situation where he just felt that if he mobilized it up and out of the pelvis, he would bugger the mesentery. And that's much worse because then that's a permanent ileostomy. But if you can get it up easily, then I think the preferred answer would be an enstoma in the right or left lower quadrant. Now with those options laid out, take a look at that last picture below as Dr. Sadai walks us through what he did in this case. You can see the closure in the midline. You can see what we did is a vesicosomy in the middle. You can see the left and right ureteral catheters. And then on the right side of the abdomen is a diverting ileostomy because I did the pull, I did a pull through. I had plenty of hindgut and brought it down and did the pull through the time of the closure. What I didn't do, Mark, is what you're describing in terms of leaving the cecal plate on the bladder. I did the yeah. traditional remove the cecal plate off of the hemibladders and, and we created first the back wall of the bladder, then had our orthopedic surgeon bring the pelvis together before deciding definitively that we're going to do a closure of the midline. And we were able with, with posterior and anterior osteotomies to bring the pubic symphysis together. And so that's when I decided interoperatively that we would go ahead and do a abdominal closure. Yeah, um, amazing. I, I, this is beautiful. So you, you did the hindgut to the anus idea that we were just talking about. I did. I, I thought that that made a lot of sense because there was plenty of hindgut. And I like the idea of not having to go back in that pelvis again. I think if you've ever been back in that pelvis later in life in an older child or teenager, you really never want to be uh, having that experience again. Let's say you have a case like this one, you have enough hindgut and you can go ahead and do your pull through. What do you do proximally? Do you bring up a mucus fistula so that you can refeed? Yes. Yes. I think that's the same. And, and how do you, from a technical standpoint, do you bring up like a double barrel so it's under one bag and it sort of refeeds itself a little bit and you could purposefully refeed it? Yeah. Do you do separated? No, I would I would do a loop uh, stoma because I don't mind that there's a little bit of passage across. And particularly if you don't have a long suture line from a tubular icicle plate in Pyam's case where he tubularized the cecal plate, there's a lot of distal stitches. I might bring up a loop, and then you can do something like purse string close the distal segment, which you can always remove in the future when everything's healed. There are a couple little tricks like that, but Evo really impressed me with this idea of refeeding the distal segment to take care of the issue that you were concerned about, Jason. And when the kid's skin was able to handle it, then he closed the ileostomy and then used that distal segment, and it worked out really, really well. So I think the the two new ideas here, um, and again, it's only been on several cases, were, are to auto-augment the bladder uh, without dissecting free of the cecal plate and doing an iliohindgut anastomosis, and potentially, if there's enough colon, pulling that through to the anus, diverting with an ileostomy to protect your work, and then refeeding. And I do believe we did spend some time talking about the traditional approach, which is separating the cecal plate, tubularizing the cecal plate, and bringing out an end stoma of the hindgut, waiting for the kid to grow up, and then pulling that colon through in the future. 
and dealing with the bladder at the same time. I think it's very important to not have urology manage the bladder independent of the decision to pull through that colon. I've had that circumstance where like at age five, the urologists have done their augmentation and their metrophenoff and their bladder neck closure, and no one thought about the colonic pull through. And then the family says, hey, do we need a colostomy for life? And it's really difficult to pull a colostomy behind an augment. So that is yet another reason for the collaborative process between colorectal and urology. And then in, the, in a girl in an XX situation, and you had a vagina here, but you need to make sure that some reconstructive work about on the vagina happens. Piam got a lot of work done in the newborn period, saving a lot of work to be done later. I really commend you for managing a really difficult case. I, th I think a lot of that came from the experience of managing these patients when they're older and realizing how difficult it can be. And I think if you spend a little extra time in the newborn period and you have a patient like this whose anatomy allowed us to reconstruct the hindgut, reconstruct the vagina, the case was very unique in that respect. One of the things I really like about the idea of leaving the cecal plate on the bladder as well is that then later on, when the child needs a metrophenoff, your appendix is right there. It's already connected. It's really easy to bring it up. And so it makes a lot of sense from a urological standpoint. Thank you, Dr. Sadai. I think we can all agree that we've covered a lot of ground on this very fascinating subject. And I want to wrap it up with a quick summary on the take-home points. We talked about the importance of the prenatal counseling, how there isn't a rush to get to the operating room once the baby's born. You have some time to do your workup, get all your specialists together to make a plan prior to any operative closure, how important it is to preserve as much bowel as you can, and then the more innovative surgical approaches. We touched on how valuable it was to have that collaboration among colleagues around the U.S. and even internationally to discuss such rare cases. And now, it would not be a colorectal quiz episode without a joke. And it must be our lucky day because we not only get one, but we get two. Do you know why teachers uh, never pass gas in public? Because they are private tutors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I ate four cans of alphabet soup yesterday. Then I had probably the biggest bowel movement ever. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps it up for our colorectal quiz. Until next time, this is Laura Tiusalo from Children's National.